Open your Bibles with me, if you have one, to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. Going back, it's very, very important. Um, I love a ditty that I heard many years ago that a, a text without a context is a con. We have to observe the context of a passage. We have to look at the bigger picture in order for it to make sense. So when we look at John chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 30 through 47, completing the chapter this morning, Lord willing, depends on how wordy I get, uh, we're going to look at it in light of what has transpired prior to this in this passage. And remember, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the man who was healed at the pool of Bethesda. Now, Jesus, as we talked about, marches into this pool, which was a gigantic pool, a couple of actually areas, five porches around with columns and shade for hundreds of people, that he marches in there and he marches up to one guy and he just basically says, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made well? And the guy kind of answers a question that Jesus didn't ask, and we talked about that, which was interesting. I think it's fascinating. Tells him all the reasons why he hasn't been made well because of this pool and the angel and all that stuff. And Jesus goes ahead and he heals him. And he heals this guy on the Sabbath, which in the Jewish leaders' minds was a big no-no. He was not violating the law of Moses. He was violating their interpretation of the law of Moses. And we looked at that. And we talked about that at some length. I'm going to go back into it again. But it says that the Jews therefore wanted to kill him because the guy was healing on the Sabbath, and they get all upset at this one guy. They get pretty uptight with him and say, hey, how come you're carrying your bed? And, and instead of rejoicing that this guy, after 38 years, they would have known, they would have seen him there if he's there for 38 years with this infirmity. They would have known that this guy was, he was crippled. He was not able to help himself. Great picture there. I didn't go into it a lot, but a great picture there on uh, our conditions as human beings before God completely helpless. And we looked at that a little bit. So last week we looked at uh, the fact that Jesus was healing on the Sabbath. These guys are upset about it. And he talked about his relationship between himself and the Father. We looked at that, that the, the fact that Jesus is equal with God in nature, equal with God in power, and equal with God in authority. And we looked at how John presents those. He just kind of nails it down one thing at a time, and, and he goes into that in quite a bit of detail. And then he finishes up by saying that all judgment has been given from the Father. The Father's not acting as judge, but the Son. And again, we looked at the reason why is that Jesus had to have the experiences that he had as a man, fully man, in order to have the ability to judge as God. And so we see that his mission was fulfilled in that way, that he was the judge, and he is the one who judges humanity. When we look at Revelation, the book of Revelation, when, when he takes the scroll, the title deed to the earth, and he begins to tear off the seals one at a time, and judgment is poured out upon the earth, it's not the Father's work at that point, that is Jesus. And his judgment is being poured out. And it will be poured out. Right now, we still live in the age of grace. We live in the church age. The age of the Gentiles, those three are interchangeable. But then, when that last believer looks up to receive Christ, or that last Gentile receives the Lord, 
he will start to wrap things up and the earth will enter into that horrible seven-year period, the Great Tribulation. Halfway through, we see the Antichrist raises up, does the abomination of desolation after he's made a, a pact and comes out looking like a hero prior. Uh, and, and all of those eschatological things that we look at when we look at the end of the age. But for now, he is still working, wooing men and women unto himself. He is still working in the hearts of people. His Holy Spirit is still active and present on this earth because he will, will, he will withdraw the Holy Spirit's presence when he wraps things up. That's why anarchy breaks out on the earth. I mean, it's a, it's a scene. And I, at some point, we'll get into looking at uh, the prophetic, and, and we'll, we'll talk about that in more detail. But this week, we're going to look at, uh, I call it the fourfold witness of Christ, because now John moves into an area where he begins to outline, again, in context, he's healed this guy at the pool. The Jews are really angry with him, and now they want to kill him. They are heating up against him, and they're wondering, okay, by what authority are you doing these things? And we're going to look at uh, the witness of John the Baptist in verses 31 to 35. We're going to look at the witness of the works of Christ in verse 36. We're going to look at the witness of the Father in verses 37 and 38. And finally, the witness of the Scriptures in verses 39 to 47. Again, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, lays this out in a very succinct manner. And what he's doing also is he is using the Jews' own rules of examination of evidence in doing so, Jesus actually gets on these guys' side. He knows what they're thinking. He knows they're under conviction. And he's not doing these things to win an argument with them. He's doing these things because he loves them. And he is bringing conviction against these religious leaders that were coming against him. I marvel at that. I mean, these guys, you know, if you come and you push me, what's the inclination of my heart? I want to push you back. Well, I, I probably won't. I mean, we're in church after all. But no, seriously, I mean, if somebody pushes you, 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 the inclination is to push back. Well, these guys keep pushing on Jesus, and what he's doing is actually bringing conviction to these guys, and we'll look at that in detail this morning. And, and they're not responding in a way that would bring them into the kingdom. They're responding in a hostile manner. But that doesn't deter Jesus from continuing to drive point the, the home the point that he is Messiah, that he does have the authority to do these things, that he is God in the flesh acting out the work of redemption for us and for them. In verse 30, we see it's sort of a finishing up of the, the part where Jesus is talking about being the judge. He says, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. First of all, Jesus' judgment is not flawed or biased like ours would be. I mean, you guys, we, we do very little. I mean, truth be told, we do very little without acting upon our own biases. I mean, and I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but when Jesus judges, it's pure. He is the just judge. And what he's saying essentially is I'm not judging on my own initiative, but when I judge, it's God's judgment. Uh, again, don't separate the fact from Jesus and the Father. I know for many years as a Christian, I would look at the Father as being kind of larger than Jesus, and Jesus as the Son being kind of smaller. That's not true. It's not true. They're co-equal. We looked at that last week in depth. 
And that when Jesus moves, when Jesus acts, God is acting. And that when he judges, God is judging. So he's saying, I'm not, that he's saying, I'm not doing this on my own initiative. I'm doing it uh, in concert, in sync with the Father, because they're co-equal. They are one. Two distinct, three distinct persons in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but one essence. So it's difficult for us to understand because we're finite, and that's an infinite concept. Very difficult for us to get there, but that we don't understand it doesn't mean it's not true. At this point, as we look at going to the rest of this chapter, Jesus, he mounts, it's like a legal style defense. And it's according to their understanding. Uh, the conclusion is not that there isn't enough evidence to believe. It's that people, these guys and many, still don't want to believe. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't know how many times over the years, guys, I've heard say, well, what about the starving children in Africa? It's like, please, what about you? You know, I, I love Jesus with John and with Peter at the end of this gospel, and, and where, where he's telling um, John, uh, he's prophesying, I'm getting this wrong, I know it, I'm going to blow this because it's ad lib, but, <laughs> but when he's talking to these guys, he's saying, you know, uh, Somebody's going to come and they're going to gird you about, take you where you don't want to go. He's talking to Peter and, and, and he says, well, and I think, is it John or Peter? Boy, I just really blew that. Anyway, he says, what is it to you what I have to do with him? You follow me. Great advice for us guys. And I'll have to bone up on that later. But the point is, is that it's, it's this defense that he's mounting that is going to fly right in the face of what they're trying to do. And it's just a fascinating way that John lays this out. Uh, so in verse 31, he says, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Now, Jesus is using, again, their methods of weighing evidence. In Deuteronomy 19, uh, the, the law states that you don't take a testimony based on one person. You take, it has to be based on two or three witnesses. And so Jesus is now going to begin to come at these guys and to explain what he's doing in light of these different witnesses, these different testimonies, the testimony of John, the testimony of the Father, the testimony of the Scriptures, and the testimony of his own works. And it's interesting, too, because he's talking about this miracle that he did at the Pool of Bethesda, when I look at that, in contemporary times, we see that men advertise miracles and don't do them. I've heard a lot of people say, oh, they raised that person from the dead. Really? Uh, I remember being exposed to a group that was all completely caught up in signs and wonders. And I, I mean, seeing gold dust blowing through the air in an auditorium and people thinking that that was the... the Seriously, yeah, I see surprised looks. I'm serious. It's, there's videos about it. And people thinking that that was the glory of God descending on this place. And it's like, no, that was somebody putting glitter in the air ducts. But, um, you know, people do miracles. They advertise miracles and don't do them. They're not really miracles. And Jesus did miracles and never advertised them. It was just an interesting side note. Verse 32, and there's another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. Now, 
He's going to talk about John the Baptist here, but he's not talking about John the Baptist in this, when we look at, at verse 32. He's talking about the Father. He lays that aside for a moment, as for a, a bit, and, and he goes right into the witness of John the Baptist at this point. Verse 33, and you sent to John, and he has borne witness of the truth, and yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you might be saved. What he's saying here, guys, is I don't need John's testimony, but you do, and you need to be saved. He's, he's Again, he's bringing conviction to these religious leaders. He doesn't rely on the testimony of men. He doesn't need to. And so he's, he's saying these things that you may be saved, that, he, that you may have spiritual understanding, that your eyes, your ears would be opened. Because with these guys, they were thoroughly shut. In Matthew chapter 3, uh, there's a great passage in here where it talks about John the Baptist. And, and it says, when they saw, 3 verse 7 through 10, when they saw many, he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, this is John, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And now, even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees, and therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 35, he was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his lights. Yeah, until they didn't like the message. You know, John had been baptizing there beyond the Jordan for quite a while, and, and they were sending delegations. Remember, we looked at that. They were sending delegations to go check this guy out, find out what he's about. And then when the religious leaders themselves approached him, he said this to them. And Jesus says, yeah, you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. He calls him the burning and the shining lamp. I think that that's a great characterization of John. Think about a lamp, guys. It burns for a while. It burns to bring light. It's the source of light to shine light on something else. And in this case, in John's case, his, mess, his mission was to shine light upon Jesus, to bring glory to Jesus. He was there. But what happens with a lamp? After a while, it goes out. And John's ministry was short-lived. He did, he fulfilled it. Remember, he said, I'm pushing Jesus forward. And he was continually pushing Jesus to the front and saying, I've got to decrease and he has to increase. And so as the burning and shining lamp of God, he fulfilled his ministry and then he was gone. Jeremiah, thinking about that too, as far as a burning and shining lamp, you know, there has to be a burning for us. There has to be a burning on the inside for us to shine on the outside. Uh, I look at Jeremiah, there's a great passage here in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse nine, it says, but his word was in my heart like a burning fire, shut up in my bones, and I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. That's what the word of God does. We talk very often here about the fact that we study the scripture verse by verse, line by line, all the way through, book by book. Why do we do that? So that we can get the full counsel of God. Uh, I was talking to a friend who's a pastor recently, and he said, yeah, was, we're teaching, we're studying in Leviticus, and I was in the part in Leviticus about, about human waste. And I went, oh, that's great. He goes, you know, we teach verse by verse. You wouldn't hear that in a topical message. 
And I said, no, you wouldn't. And then he went on to tell me all these wonderful things about this passage that was about that. And I'm kind of going, great, praise the Lord. <laughs> Glad we're not in Leviticus. No, I'm not, just kidding. But it's true. We do this so that we can have the light of God shine on different areas of our life. It's not just coming to church and studying the word. It's not just sitting at home with our own devotional time, our own private time with the Lord and studying the word as an end to itself. It was one of the things these guys got wrong. But there's a purpose to it. It's to apply God's word to my life. To say, bread of heaven, feed my soul. Show me, Lord, what it is you want to speak to me because by his spirit, through his word, he will speak. And he does speak because he's personal, because he is intimately involved in the affairs of his people. When he says you were willing for a time, what's implied is you rejected his testimony because his message was unbearable. Teaching the Bible over years, there have been a number of times where um, the Spirit has brought conviction to someone, and I've heard about it. <laughs> I call it you know, kill the messenger. Uh, there's, a, there's a place where as God moves, I don't know what people are going through. Uh, and, I mean, sometimes I know some aspects, but I don't know what God is doing in your life, in your heart. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna teach His Word and and pray that His Holy Spirit falls on me as I teach and falls on you as you listen. And the same thing when I'm sitting on the other side and I'm being taught, being fed by someone else. And there's a time where Jesus is talking here about John. He was basically the mouthpiece for God, and their solution was kill the messenger. Still happens. Well, nobody's killed me, but I mean, people take it upon themselves to kind of you know. Uh, come against the messenger when it's simply, um, I remember sharing with Nicholas one day, I, I didn't write the paper. I'm just here to throw it in your yard. And that's God's job to do what he wants with all of that. He's saying that John was elevated by you for a time and then you took him down. Interesting, Jesus was elevated, elevated by the Father and all through history, people have been attempting to take him down and still haven't. No one takes him down. So now we move into the witness of the works of Christ. That's John the Baptist, the works of Christ. But I have greater, uh, a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. You know, again, you look at this in, in the greater context. He, he's saying, you know, I healed a guy on the Sabbath. And you're ticked off because he's carrying his bed. Uh, it's, again, it, it boggles my mind. But they knew Isaiah 61. They knew what was being said there. When Isaiah prophesied, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to open the eyes of the blind, and to set the captives free. They knew what that said. And they knew when Jesus stood up in the synagogue in, in Nazareth, right before they kicked him out of town, that he was making a claim. And it was a very accurate claim, and he was making a claim to be the Messiah. And they knew that. He wasn't doing this. Again, he wasn't doing this to win an argument with these guys. He was doing it to bring conviction to the religious leaders of his day because he loved them. It's so easy for us to slip into a black hat, white hat mentality. You know, we're the Christians. We're the ones with the white hats. 
And those people in the world are the ones with the black hats. And after all, look at those crummy things that they're always doing. They don't know any better. They're serving the only nature they know. It's up to you and I to, to be used of God to bring the light of the gospel to these people. That Because those deeds that we're seeing, I mean, again, sin nature. I don't, it's not my sins that make me a sinner. It's me being a sinner by nature that manifests in sins. It manifests in deeds. And so when I go to assess other people, we've talked about the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Am I operating from the knowledge of good and evil? And I'm saying, look at that filthy person. Look at those things they're doing. Oh my goodness, did you see what Marianne was doing? You know, the whole deal. Or am I operating from the tree of life? Let me tell you about one who died for you. Let me tell you about Jesus. He died to bring you life. Let him do the cleaning. Let him do the sanctifying. That's all stuff that happens on this side of the cross. It's not ever a means to get somebody there. Because the Bible tells us it's the kindness of God that leads someone to repentance. It's not getting up in their face. I was reading about someone not long ago about a woman that went to a wedding and, and there was a gay couple there, a couple of women there, and that the Christians in the wedding shunned this couple. They just turned their back, folded their arms, and wouldn't talk to them. Totally blew them off. It's operating out of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This woman said, I went over and sat down next to them, and I engaged them, and I loved them. And I didn't compromise my faith. I didn't tell them it's okay, the lifestyle you're in. But I built a relationship with them. How do you think people are going to get saved if we have an arrogant, haughty attitude about the things of God? That we have the white hat and they've got the black hat. It's a given, folks. We're sinners, all of us. The thing that makes the difference with us is whether we have come to the cross, whether we have come to Christ, whether we have turned from the old life and embraced the work that he did. That other stuff comes. I want to take a, a, a bit of a side journey here because we're going to go to Luke chapter 5 and look at another of Jesus said the works themselves testify to who I am, essentially. And in Luke chapter 5, Jesus heals a leper. And there's some very interesting dialogue that goes on there as he heals this guy with leprosy. And it really casts light on the rest of the chapter here in chapter 5. So in Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, we see that the leper is cleansed. Verse 12, And it happened when he was in a certain city that, behold, a man who was full of leprosy, in other words, advanced leprosy, Probably nose fallen off, fingers gone. I mean, leprosy is an insidious disease. It's still around. Um, it's a bacterial disease that, yeah, people think about it as a skin disease, but it's really a disease that affects the central nervous system. And it, it 
basically eats up nerves, nerve endings. And uh, it's in the Bible, it's always looked at as a picture of sin. It's, it's, it's similar to leaven or yeast. I mean, you look at leprosy and it's, it starts out small. And then as it advances, it kills these nerve endings and the person doesn't even have feeling anymore. That part of the problem with leprosy is that people who have it, they lose the sensation for pain in their nerve endings and they injure themselves and not even aware of it. But I mean, it's an insidious disease, and it was very common in Jesus' day. I was reading an article about it uh, as I was preparing for this morning, and I realized, and I learned that armadillos carry leprosy. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Yeah, they actually, and yeah, that's free. Um, <laughs> but armadillos carry leprosy. They uh, have studied, done studies on people in the South that keep turning up with leprosy, and they almost 100% have reported that they were handling armadillos. <laughs> they actually are harboring this bug. At any rate, that this guy is full of leprosy. So he has an advanced case of leprosy. And he saw Jesus and he fell on his face and he implored him saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Interesting. Understand. Pay attention to that word clean. Okay. And he put his hand out and he touched him saying, I am willing be cleansed. Notice he doesn't say be healed. He says be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them, just as Moses commanded. I included a slide of a leper, leper's hands. Can't see it real well. But that's what advanced leprosy would look like. And I could have gone and shown you the whole works, but it was, it's pretty graphic stuff. Big, huge, open source. Uh, people whose faces are completely mangled by this stuff. And, and, and I mean, no toes, no fingers. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm willing. And I mean, it's a remarkable thing that he says, yeah, I'm willing. Um, and he says... Uh, I'm willing, be cleansed. Again, he doesn't say be healed. He says be cleansed. And, and he says, show yourself to the priest, make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them, as, as Moses commanded. The reason he says that is there were some things in the law that dealt with lepers. If you look at the first five books, the five books of Moses in the Old Testament, if you look at that as a whole, that's the law, the Mosaic law, the law of Moses. That's why he says, just as Moses commanded. It wasn't Moses himself. It was the law, the, the covenant that Moses represented. And remember, these Jewish leaders were really hung on the law, but they were hung on their interpretation of the law. And Jesus, again, his intention with these guys here in John chapter 5 is to bring conviction. I'm not going to go into Leviticus 13 and 14. If you go to the middle of the book, the middle of the law, and you see in chapter 13, uh, it's the longest chapter in the Bible concerning diagnosing a disease. If you want to know how to diagnose leprosy, you can go right there. And I just thought I'd bless your heart with that information in case you're out there to check people out. But I mean, he goes into, God goes into such intricate detail here. And I mean, he is basically charging the priests with the diagnosis. The Levitical priests. Remember, the, the tribe of Levi was the priestly tribe. 
Okay, there were two segments to the tribe of Levi. There were the Levites themselves, and they were charged with handling the things of the priesthood. But then there were the sons of Aaron, and they were the operating priests, the high priest and the priests that had actual access to the tabernacle, and then the temple were considered to be the sons of Aaron. They were the priestly line. And so he's giving charge over these people with leprosy to the priests. Understand. That priesthood was in place in Jesus' day. So Jesus is saying, go and show yourself to the priest because he's going to bring the priest to accountability in this story in Luke. Chapter 14, excuse me, is the longest chapter in the Bible that describes an offering for the cleansing of a disease and it's for leprosy. Two whole chapters devoted to this disease. Now, a little bit of background on this. There is nothing in the Old Testament that talks about this particular cleansing ever being done. There is not one account in God's word. They knew chapter 13. The priests were the ones who declared someone unclean. That's why Jesus says cleansed. This guy had been declared unclean by the priests. They were happy to declare someone unclean. But there's not an account anywhere in the Old Testament of someone being cleansed from leprosy. Now, there is one place in, um, in Luke chapter 4, verse 27. Jesus says, There were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian, a Gentile. So no Jew had ever been cleansed of this disease. We see Moses' sister Miriam. Remember, she gets on Moses because he married a Cushite woman, right? Um, my daughter came and asked me that one time. One of her girlfriends was dating a, a, a black guy, and she said, Dad, what, is, what does the Bible say about, about that? And she was all incensed. And I said, well, honey, let me tell you. Uh, here's Miriam. She got on Moses because he married a, a Cushite. That's an Ethiopian woman, probably a black woman. And, you know, God's colorblind, sweetheart. And I'm telling my daughter this, and she's, because she's like scandalized. She's a teenager. And, um, and, and I said, now, she got on Moses about that, and God didn't like that. So he gave her leprosy. Do you know what leprosy does to a person's skin? She goes, no. I said, it makes them really, really white. Tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. <laughs> and she's like, oh, oh, so it's okay? I said, sweetheart. If God's colorblind, so should we be. Don't worry about it. She's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Off she goes. But there's that account. But that was a judgment from God. That wasn't somebody who had contracted this disease and was cleansed. God took it away from Miriam after a week. You remember, he put her out of the camp and all that stuff. You can look at the story. But truly, this is a disease that had not, this particular chapter in Leviticus had never been exercised. That leads me to one conclusion. Caiaphas was the high priest when Jesus was on the scene. His father-in-law, Annas, was behind the scenes. We talked about that when we looked at Jesus cleansing the temple. His, and he had brother-in-laws and all that uh, that were also part of the priestly group in that day. All of them were very corrupt. Again, they would bring a condemning aspect towards a guy with leprosy. But Jesus, when he tells this guy, go show yourself to the priest, he's saying, go see what they do. Because he says, you, see, you sit in the seat of Moses, and you don't do what Moses said to do. This is what it looked like. 
Uh, just made some notes on this. We're not going to go through Leviticus 14. But in order for the guy to be proclaimed clean, he had to go to the temple and go to the priest. That's why Jesus sends this guy. And this is from Leviticus 14. He said, you'll take two doves and then take an earthen vessel, which is a picture of Christ, and you'll fill it with living water, not just regular water, but water from like a mikvah or a lake, living water. And again, picture of Christ. Uh, there's a, there's a great deal of imagery in, in Leviticus 14. And then you'll take hyssop and a scarlet thread. And the scarlet, scarlet thread was a picture of the history of the nation in the line of the Messiah. Uh, great richness there. I mean, and this is from how to cleanse a leper. But there's so much about Jesus in it. Um, he says, you'll kill one bird, mix his blood with the living water, and then dip the other bird in the living water, and then set him free. That's a picture of redemption. And what happens to every sinner? Then you shave the guy like a cue ball. I love that part. I mean, they shave every hair from this guy's body. They completely remove everything. And again, this is the priest's job. Can you imagine Caiaphas saying, oh, uh, no thanks <laughs> with this guy. Uh, every, you, you shave everything, then you inspect him again, and you put him away for seven days. You've got to put him away for a week. So now the priests have to hide him in the temple or somewhere, wherever, and put him away for a week. They're not going to take him home. The guy's leper. You know, he's, it's like, what do we do with this guy now? So in Leviticus 14, it says you put him away for seven days, and, and in the eighth day, you bring him out, and you inspect him again. Now, if he's clean, then you have to sacrifice a lamb. So they would take the lamb's blood and put it on his right ear, signifying what we hear is washed or cleansed. This is a great picture of sanctification as a believer, uh, cleansed by the blood. And then they would put the blood on his right thumb, signifying that what we do is washed or cleansed by the blood. And then they put the blood on the big toe of his right foot. This is all God's instruction on how to cleanse a leper. And they put it on his right foot, signifying where we go is cleansed. And then the priest would take a log of oil. And I don't know what a log of oil is. I just imagine it's probably some oil. <laughs> signifying, obviously, when we look at oil in the Bible, it's signifying of the Holy Spirit. And the priest would take the log of oil and put it on his right ear, on his right hand, and his foot, just like he did with the blood. And the remaining oil was then spread on the man's forehead. After all of that, they were to present him to the nation as clean. I believe, in interpretation here, but there's nothing that supports any other conclusion that this passage in Leviticus 14, when Jesus brought that to bear with healing a leper, that it was for Caiaphas. I believe that that looked forward. There was never a fulfillment until Caius, Caiaphas was on the scene and Jesus sent the cleansed leper to him. Not healed, but cleansed. Yeah, he was healed, but he used the word cleansed on purpose because they were declared unclean and never declared clean. And therefore, they're failing the law. And Jesus said, the works that I do, they're bearing witness of who I am. And these guys had to be under conviction. He says, go show yourself to the priest. And they knew who he was, and he loved them. Again, he was reaching for these guys. 
Look finally at their, next at the witness of the Father. And the Father himself, who sent me, has testified of me. And you've neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. Now he's telling this to the religious leaders. And I would imagine that they're not happy to hear this. I would imagine that they're gritting their teeth at this point. This guy, he just won't lay off. But he's telling them why he's doing what he's doing. Why he healed this guy on the Sabbath there at the pool. Verse 38, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you don't believe. In other words, you don't believe his word, you don't have his word abiding in you because I'm standing in front of you. I'm the word of God and you don't believe me. So how can you say that you have the word of God in you? You don't. Finally, the witness of the scriptures in verse 39, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and these are they which testify of me. These guys read the scriptures, but they read them in a wrong fashion. They shut their minds. They read not to search for God, but to find arguments to support their own positions. They didn't just look at the scriptures, they scoured the scriptures. They tracked down things that would support their gig. Very often out of context is a huge thing. Again, a text without a context is a con. You can get all kinds of crazy, goofy things out of the Bible if you want to approach it to try to support a preconceived idea. And it's very poor scholarship. And it's a good way to get out there as far as interpreting accurately, dividing the word of truth. Verse 40, but you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. Again, appealing to them now. I don't receive honor from men, but I know you and that you do not have the love of God in you. Why didn't they? Because they preferred ritual to mercy. Straight up. They were so hung on their rituals that mercy never occurred to them with this guy that was healed. Verse 43, I've come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If anyone comes in his own name, him you'll receive. And you know, Jesus in Matthew 24 says, for many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ and they'll deceive many. Even in modern day Jews, they still believe, they're still looking for Messiah and many of them are looking for a guy to come in Elijah's name. Uh, we talked about that earlier in the Gospel of John, that the Messiah will be a man. And, and many will come in his name. Many people claim to be the voice of God in our age. Uh, I remember years ago, there was a, a book written by a guy by the name of Chuck Colson that was entitled, Who Speaks for God? Because many people alleged to speak for God. And I'm convinced, brothers and sisters, that not many people truly do. Uh, I've had a number of talks with Ron. Uh, just, I love the fact that he studies a lot of that stuff. Uh, and and I've, I've seen over and over again that these groups or these individuals that are out there that are peddling the word of God are doing just that. There's a selfish motive. There's a gain in there. There's something other than glorifying the Father. And that's what Jesus, I mean, that's not a new thing. It's been going on since his day. It's something he came against personally. And I believe he still does. He says, how can you believe in verse 44 who receive honor from one another and you don't seek to honor that 
that comes from the only God. You honor one another. You know, have you ever noticed that? That we as a society, we build people up. We put people on pedestals. And, and, and then we take them down. You ever heard the term one-hit wonder? Yeah, that's somebody that made the top 40 once, and then they were gone. They disappeared. They're in obscurity forever. It's because we put them up and we take them down. And Jesus said, no, that does, that's not going to happen with me because men are not elevating me. My Father is elevating me. And that sticks. This verse, in verse 44, it's a, it's a great challenge for us as Christians as to how we should live. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, the Apostle Paul writes, For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves, are comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. I love that verse because he's saying, yeah, you know what, you guys, how many, time, how many award shows are on television now? Or we want to just glorify man. Oh, that person, oh, there's a, it's this award. Oh, it's that award. Oh, we want to give each other awards. So let's tell each other how wonderful we are. Paul says, that's not wise. That's just not good. Where do we derive our worth? Is it from knowing I'm a son, I'm a daughter of the living God? Or because I won a popularity contest. I saw my granddaughter uh, is advancing to, I think, the state spelling championship or something like that. Uh, this week. And it took me back to when I was like, I don't know, nine years old. And, and I won the spelling bee for our school and I got to go ride a fire truck. And it was so exciting. And those men, they just lifted me up, but they never thought about me again after I rode that fire truck. That was my 15 minutes of fame. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. And, and we need to be careful, guys. We truly do. We just have to guard our hearts over seeking the acclaim, seeking the, the approval of men. I want to be approved before my father. That's what counts. Verse 45, he says, Do not think that I shall accuse you to the father. And there is one who accuses you. This connects back to Luke chapter 5, guys. Moses, in whom you trust. You see, when Jesus sent that leper to the priests and they did nothing, he was challenging the priests on the basis of Leviticus 14. And they came up short. He's saying the law accuses you. Verse 46, For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. You know, and it's, he says the scriptures speak of me. They all point to me. I mean, if you're a student of the Bible, it's nothing new to you that you know. You study the Old Testament, you see Jesus all over the place there. It's because the whole thing was written of him. And, and I mean, I remember my eyes being opened as a young believer. I mean, part of the way I came to the Lord was I had read Isaiah chapter 53, which is probably the greatest prophetic passage in the Old Testament, where it talks about the suffering servant. I read that, and then I read in the margin that it was 570 or whatever it was, 700 years, whatever it is, before Christ, before he was born, here's this whole thing and outlined who he was and what he did. It's the word of God. I mean, that convinced me that it wasn't this Mormon church that I was part of. It was the word of God. And, and at that moment, as I read that passage and I had understanding of it, the Lord opened my heart. And, and I mean, I began to fall in love with Jesus while I was still a Mormon. Yeah, pretty soon I got sick of being a Mormon and 
got saved and all that. But I mean, it, it's about God's word. It's not about what some charlatan says. It's not about somebody peddling the word of God. In Matthew chapter 23, it says, Jesus spoke to the multitudes and his disciples saying, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in, the, in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. That's just what we're looking at this morning. When Jesus says that the law, Moses condemns you, it's because of that. And further in chapter 23, uh, Jesus, in, in pronouncing the seven woes that he pronounces on the religious leaders of his day, here's one of them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions, provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. And if they were guilty of anything, they were guilty of spiritual neglect. They were in this for their own gain. They were in it for their own deal. Uh, we'll look at that more when, as we move along here. But these guys, they were threatened by Jesus. He threatened their power base. He came against everything they stood for. And at the same time, appealed to them. It wasn't just to win. It wasn't just to be right. He's appealing to them and bringing conviction. Very often when God brings conviction, it's in the quietness of my own heart, perhaps sitting in my office or you know, through a conversation with someone and the Lord will touch my heart and he'll convict. And there are times though where his conviction comes crashing down. And I mean, praise God he does that. So we looked at the fourfold witness. We looked at the witness of John the Baptist. Uh, I don't need his witness, but I use it that you might be saved. Let me make some comments on these as we move through. And this is a hard hitting one, but I believe it's true. If you're meeting a need in an unbeliever's life and are not pro proclaiming the gospel, you are not loving them. Think about it. If I meet a temporary need in someone's life and I'm not meeting their eternal need, I'm not loving them. I don't know how I can sugarcoat that. I don't know how I can make that easier to digest as I just sat before the Lord praying about and, and making notes about the message this morning that was something that it just came clear to me. And it was like, Lord, give me that heart that is looking at the eternal value of the things that I do, the things that I say. If you're not meeting a need, if you're meeting a need in an unbeliever's life and not proclaiming the gospel, you're not loving them. And there's a time. I mean, we pray for the right timing. I mean, if somebody's eyes are glazing over, I'm going to stop. I, you know, I, I understand that. But pray about those things. In dealing with the world around us, we want them to see the love of Jesus. So we looked at the witness of the Father. Jesus said, you don't receive his witness because you don't receive me. You don't receive my witness. And then the notes I made on that is repentance is available. <laughs> The witness of the scriptures. The scriptures, Moses, condemns you because you say and you do not do. I made some notes here as we wrap up. Wrap uh, This morning it was from a book by Philip Yancey. I'm just going to make a few, some excerpts from that. It was called In Search of a Both and Church. 
Sanctification keeps running aground on the barrier reef of original sin. How can we in the church uphold the ideal of holiness, the proper striving for life on the highest plane, while avoiding the consequences of disillusionment, pettiness, spiritual pride, or exclusivism? Or to ask the opposite question, how can we who emphasize community support, never judgment, vulnerability, and introspection keep from aiming too low? America is in constant danger of freedom abuse. Its churches are in danger of grace abuse. With these questions in mind, I read the New Testament epistles. I took some comfort in the fact that the church in the first century was already on a seesaw, tilting now toward perfectionistic legalism and now toward raucous licentiousness. (laughs) James wrote to one extreme, Paul often addressed the other. Have you ever noticed that? that there are really hard-hitting passages in the Scripture, and there are times where we talk about obedience, there are times where we talk about holiness, there are times where we talk about sin and the the Lord working in our hearts, but there are also times where we talk about comfort, times where we talk about His grace, times where we talk about uh, His great love that He has for us. And the Bible presents both of those. That's the seesaw that He's talking about. Each letter had a strong correcting emphasis, but all stressed the dual message of the gospel that I'm talking about here. The church, in other words, should be both, a people who strive toward holiness and yet relax in grace. I love that. We strive towards holiness, but we relax in grace. A people who may condemn themselves, but never others. A people who depend on God and not themselves. The seesaw is still lurching back and forth. Some churches tilt one way, some another. My reading of the epistles left me yearning for a both-and church. I've seen too many either-or congregations. I thought that was good. As we look at these things and as we study God's word and we allow him by his spirit to penetrate our hearts, perhaps you need an encouraging word this morning. Perhaps you're dealing with some tough things, some some burdens, some heavy trials. His grace, his mercy, his love, his compassion is available. Uh, I'm available after the service to pray with you, pray for you. Roger's here. He'll do the same. Uh, Perhaps the Lord has got you in a place where you're under conviction for an area of your life. It's the same Lord, the same Spirit. He comes to us where we're at. He comes to us and he beckons us onward. He beckons us deeper with him. And so just take courage. Regardless of where God has us, his love for us is poured out. He's not trying to win an argument with you. He may be bringing conviction because he loves you the way he loved these guys. And he's not, he's not just empty with his words of comfort. Uh, they're substantial. There's substance to those. We can lean on him when we're going through the trials, when we're going through the fires. We can understand that his love for us is greater than any love we could imagine. And knowing that, we can stand firm, knowing that the ground that we occupy is ground in his kingdom and ground that he wants us to occupy with him in that ever-present, wonderful, beautiful, personal relationship that we share. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for this brief look in the Gospel of John at at Jesus loving these religious leaders enough to bring conviction, enough to reveal their error, enough to, to bring truth to them. 
And Lord, as you deal with us, as you work in our hearts, I pray the same for each one of us, that you love us enough to bring us to those places, to reveal new aspects of who you are, to reveal aspects of who we are. I pray for hearts that are yielded to the moving of your spirit, Father. I pray for those of us that are going through trial, perhaps some severe things in our lives. I pray, Father, that you, being the God of all comfort, would do just that, that you would bring comfort, that you would bring relief, that you would bring a sense of your presence that perhaps has not been felt until now and experienced in in such a measure that we know that it's you. We commit ourselves afresh to you, Father. We pray you'd go before us the rest of this day and in the week ahead. We thank you for your love and for your grace. We depend upon it. We depend upon you in Jesus' name. And they all said, amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week.